Father, we come before you and we would ask that you would just bless the mothers who are in here. They have devoted their lives to the rearing of children and also the grandmothers who are deeply involved in this task. I, I would pray that you would bless them, fill them with joy. And Lord, may you also give us insight and wisdom, not just the mothers, but for all of us, the fathers and the children, those who are single. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand their plight, so to speak, and the blessings that they receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, no matter what you do for your children, there is always the possibility that they will go astray, that they will not follow what they have been taught. They will go down a different road. They will sin. They will do things that you thought not possible. Now, for those who are believers, their children may fall away from the faith. And that can be difficult. That can be disconcerting. And there's always this view, if, especially if somebody is a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, that their children would follow in the same footsteps, that the God of the mother or the father would become the God of the children as well. It wouldn't be simply that they identify as a Christian, but they would follow Christ. That is the goal, I believe, of every disciple of Jesus, whether a mother or a father. And we'll look at a few mothers and glean some wisdom, uh, those who are in Scripture. And we'll look at four mothers who raised their children, and these children sinned greatly, and then those same children turned back to the Lord. So there's always this hope. These four women are Jochebed, if you can remember who Jochebed was. The next one is Nitzavet, and you might say, who in the world is Nitzavet? I will tell you in a moment. The wife of Manoah, we don't have her name, but we know that she was a follower of God. And then Bathsheba, those four women. Now, there are several more women that you could go to who were mothers in the scripture, but we'll just go through these four. Now, Jochebed, do you know who she was? The mother of Moses. She's the one that gave birth to Moses. She was a godly woman. She did not follow the edict of Pharaoh and kill her son because all the sons that were born were supposed to be killed because Pharaoh was worried about the male population of the Israelites, that they may become too numerous and overtake Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh gave an order to kill all the male children, throw them in the river, so to speak. And so she placed Moses, as he was young, in a basket and floated the infant down the river Nile. Now, this is before he was weaned. So how old was he? We don't know. He was an infant. Uh, we know that. He probably couldn't have crawled out of the basket. So he was young, maybe a year or under. And Moses' older sister, by the way, he had two other siblings who were older, there was Miriam, and the other one was Aaron. I'm sure you'll remember that from the book of Exodus that we went through. And then the daughter of Pharaoh found the child and took Moses to be her own. And Pharaoh's daughter took Moses and gave him the best of everything. She fulfilled that 
place of being not the biological mother, but being the mother who would take care of and nurture Moses. And of course, we know that Miriam followed the basket down the river. And when it came to Pharaoh's daughter, she asked Pharaoh's daughter if she'd like her to go get a wet nurse, which happened to be her mother, who was the mother of Moses. And so that worked out until Moses was weaned. And then Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. So Moses, you know, we, we think of him, he was probably a handsome young man. He, he was probably admired by all the young Egyptian and Jewish women who were out there, a position of power. But Moses became a murderer and a fugitive. Moses was a complainer, and God was even going to kill Moses because of his disobedience. He started so well. He, had, he was a shining star coming up, and all of a sudden, this fall from grace, and, and he's running for his life. And I'm just going to read you some of this here. A murderer and a fugitive. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. So there, he, he thought he was somebody. He killed an Egyptian because he knew he was a Hebrew and thought the Hebrew people would receive him. And maybe he had this Messiah complex that I'm going to help the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel rejected him, of course. And then he became a complainer. When God called him after he had the burning bush, you know, and he experienced and he's talking with God. Uh, Exodus 4.10 through 13 tells us, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, Please send someone else to do it. He, he didn't want to be obedient to God. Now, <clears throat> imagine being a, a mother and the Lord uh, calls a son or a daughter in a particular area of ministry and they go, no, I don't want to do that. And you know the call is on their life and they're just saying no. <clears throat> you would probably be discouraged. Like, why don't you follow God's plan for your life? Why do you insist on going your own way? So you could see how the consternation of the individual who has this calling, they're turning away, how that would affect the mother or the father. And you could see how disappointment and discouragement would set in on this. Now, this is probably after the life of Jochebed was probably over. But if she was alive, she certainly would have been experiencing these things if she knew what was going on in the life of Moses. But then he was disobedient after complaining. He wasn't following the Lord with his whole heart. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 24, it says, At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord sent, or let him alone. 
And at that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So Moses was a Jew. He knew that circumcision was to be practiced. Zipporah, on the other hand, she probably looked at it as like, it's not practiced in our country or it's not something we look after. It's something that the Jews had to do. Moses was negligent in circumcising the children. And so Jesus shows up, I believe this is a Christophany, and he's going to kill Moses. Like, why aren't you doing that? That's it. I've had it out of the pool. You're done. And he was going to kill him. Now, I don't know exactly how that was going to happen, but Zipporah said, wait. And she went and circumcised the son, and she was kind of frustrated over the whole thing. And so here's Moses, a murderer, a fugitive, a complainer, disobedient to God. So what do you do with that? I'll get to that point. What about Nitzavet? Who is Nitzavet? Now, the name Nitzavet is not in the scriptures, but it is in the Talmud. Is it true or not who Nitzavet is? We don't know, but it could have been handed down by tradition. It would be the mother of King David. Her name is never mentioned in the scriptures. We know that David, there were eight sons in the family total. Uh, two daughters are mentioned, which I'll get to in a minute. But David was the youngest of all the sons. <clears throat> and if, if you do some investigation into this, and there were several different theories about why David was out tending the sheep when Samuel showed up to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king, David wasn't there. But all the other seven sons were there. Now, what, people ask the question, why is that the case? Well, <clears throat> it may turn out, and you have to really kind of dig deep on this, but it could be that David had a different mother than the other seven brothers. And when it comes to uh, David meeting up with his older three brothers when they were up against the Philistines and Goliath was there, we are told that the older brothers, and I'll probably read that in a second, the older brothers were kind of wroth with him they they were angry at him because he was going around asking people what's this philistine saying what what's going on with this and they were angry at him you just a conceited little brat what are you doing here you need to just go back home they were flinging insults at him <clears throat> and so the reason he didn't show up at the time the brothers probably didn't accept him when samuel was there and he was just go tend the sheep we have a meeting with samuel the prophet and, of course, we know the story that Samuel said, none of these are the king. And he thought the first one, oh, look, this guy looks like a king. And, no, it fell to David. And so David was called in, and he was anointed as king. So David's mother, we, we don't know too much about her. We have a couple of things that we understand. Abigail and Zeruiah were also his sisters. It's mentioned in First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 13. And also Second Samuel chapter 17, verse 25. You can do a little search on that little Bible study to see how that all plays out. I won't go into the details of that. But we know that there were at least the eight brothers or the eight boys and the two girls. There could have been more. We don't know. Now, we do know a couple of things about his mother. In Psalm chapter 86, verse 16, it tells us that she served the Lord. She was a godly individual. 
It says, oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant. And this is David speaking or writing. And save your son or save the son of your maidservant. So she is the maidservant of the Lord. And he's asking God to save him in that particular passage. And David sought to protect his mother and father. Remember when Absalom was trying to usurp the throne and he was pursuing David. And so David, he sought out the protection for both his mother and father. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 3 through 4, it says, From there David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. So David was caring for his mother and his father after he had become, after he had become king. Now, there was certainly, like I said, animosity between the brothers. We know that. In First Samuel chapter 17, verse 28, this refers to what I just previously mentioned. When Eliab, and he was David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom do you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know you're conceited, or how conceited you are, and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. So they were definitely fighting back and forth i'm sure there were scuffles and little fights between them i don't know the age difference between the brothers that were there but typical in a household brothers are just going to fight now i i heard charlie kirk uh, talking about women and men and he was dealing with transgender issues and gender identity and all of that and he was talking about how men men don't have a tendency to be empathetic when men get together, we don't go, so how are you feeling? Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And they don't put the hand on the back of the brother normally and rub it a little bit. And so, Let me pray for you. But guys don't do that. When guys get together, it's like, let's hunt, let's fish, let's surf, let's rock climb. Let's laugh. Let's tell jokes. Let's, it, it's just this back and forth bantering. Sometimes it's friendly. Sometimes it's not so friendly. One of the distinct things I remember growing up was the ridicule boys would have amongst each other. Like, oh, you little baby. Yeah, and they would use other words, you know, things like that for boys. You know, uh, rub a little dirt in it. It'll be fine. You know, you have this blood coming out your head. Just, uh, just get over it. Come on, grow up, be a man, that type of thing. Girls are completely different when they get together. They chit-chat. They, they love to communicate. Boys don't have to communicate. You know, two men can go fishing, sit for hours, like four hours in a day, not say a word to each other and have the greatest time. And it, girls will never do something like that, let alone go fishing. If they get together, they're going to talk the whole time because that's how they interact with each other and so the two are different and so these boys here who are always yelling and fighting amongst each other i think it can get better when you get older uh, you know there's a little more serenity a little more maturity that comes along and i think the same thing can be said of women as well as their siblings if they fight with one another and the mother is always trying to make peace at least in our household that's what she did because we were always scuffling around the house and we all learned how to wrestle. Things were getting broken in the house, you know. The house wasn't very big. A, a foot would go here, a table would break there. You know, just 
little things like that. And the, my mom would come out. No, I can remember one time after I was married, we were over at my parents' house and Patty was there and, and my brother and I, one of my brothers, we were talking back and forth and it, it wasn't quite an argument, but you know, he was going back and forth. We were talking about different things and I was a believer at that time. I wasn't a pastor and he was definitely not a believer and I'm sure it's something spiritual. And my mother stands up and she goes, all right, you two boys, now kiss and make up. So I bent down and I gave him a kiss. Worst kiss I have ever had. All oh, the in, the yanks. I think about it now and I go, Ugh, you know, doing something like that. But we did that jokingly and it kind of calmed everything down. The whole family was laughing, you know, it was just good. But the, the boys, they just kind of go back and forth. And the mother tries to be the peacemaker because she loves everybody equally, right? We always used to ask the question, who do you love more? <laughs> and she would say, I love all you boys equally, you know, is what she would say. I think her fingers were crossed behind her back, but um, who knows if that was the case or not. But I, and that's how we are, Patty and I, with our kids. We, we love them all equally. If something happened to one of them, we would grieve just the same over one as we would the rest. So boys argue, girls argue. Girls do it with words. Boys eventually do it with fisticuffs. And that's how it is. Now, with David, he had this arguing going on, but and he was doing well, and he was anointed king, and he was a mu- musician, and he could throw a sling, a rock out of a sling. He killed a bear. I mean, the guy was just like phenomenal. How, how do you do stuff like that? And he was just a man's man. It was who he was. He had so much testosterone that in Second Samuel chapter 11, he saw a woman who was unclothed. In the spring at that time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged uh, Ribah. <clears throat> but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got down or got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And by the way, when the the Bible uses a modifier, very beautiful, she was the best. Sarah, you know, 90 years old, very beautiful. She was the best. I mean, she was the top. So this woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, now go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left that place, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. And I think you know the rest of the story. What happened? Well, he became a murderer. In Second Samuel chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Well, let me digress here. What happened was, if you are not familiar with the story, I think most of you are, 
David said, sleep with your wife. Go in and sleep with your wife. He wanted to cover his adultery because she was pregnant. And you can always say, well, you know, nine months. It wasn't quite nine months. Baby was born a little early. This is going to work out okay. Be just fine. He'll cover all the sin by doing that. Uriah refused to do it. He says, how can I go into my wife when the men are still out there in the field? What a noble guy. Wanted to go back and fight rather than be with his wife. How fair would that be, you know, to the rest of the men? So he wouldn't do it. And David even tried to get him drunk to go sleep with him, and he still wouldn't do it. And so he sent him back, carrying his own death warrant, back to Joab. And Joab was instructed by King David, look, I want you to put him at the front of the line. We're in the heat of the battle, and then I want you to withdraw the rest of the troops. And you know what's going to happen. Those are Bill's words, the new Bill version. And, and, and so that's what Joab did. He went to the section of capturing the city that was the most difficult, where the battle was the most severe, and he pulled back. And the scripture tells us that not only did Uriah die, but some other men did as well. So he's not only guilty of the death of Uriah, but he's guilty with the deaths of other men as well, all because he wanted to cover his sin. So Uriah died, right? He was killed. And so he goes and David goes and takes Bathsheba and takes Bathsheba into the household. And Bathsheba, she's starting to grow, you know, so she's pregnant. And then Nathan comes along and Nathan tells this little story. In Second Samuel chapter 12, he says, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man who said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said, to David, you are the man, because the sheep, the little ewe lamb, that was Bathsheba, and he took it from Uriah, and I'm sure at that point, the guilt came over him, oh, woe is me, and so, if something like this was going on when your mother was still alive, could you see somebody saying, does your mother know about this, and what would the mother say? What? You you know, in the black community, the mothers have a tendency to have some authority inside the household. Have you ever seen them where they take off a shoe or a slipper and they're hitting their son upside the head? Like, what are you thinking? Or they grab their son like, you're not going to be involved in this. Some of the things with BLM, I think I saw one or two instances of that where the mother came in and just, you are not doing this and taking them out of there. And that, that the mother would disagree with everything that's going on. And then you lose the respect of the mother and you could see the problems with this. If she found out and of course this became known to everybody what David had done and he repented but when when David did this we know that his sin was just made manifest so he was a murderer he he was somebody who tried to hide his sin he he was somebody who was an adulterer and this is somebody who was born to Nitzavet his mother, if that was indeed her name. So here's another case of somebody going in the wrong direction. Then there's the wife of Manoah, Samson's mother. 
Now, Samson's mother, she was a devout woman with her husband. They offered sacrifices to the Lord when the angel visited them and gave them the news about the birth of Samson because she was barren. And there were several women in Scripture who were barren. There was Sarah, there was Rebecca, there was the wife of Manoah, and the Lord chose them to give them uh, children. And they were blessed, excuse me, because of it. Now, if you remember the story, what happened was the angel of the Lord showed up to the wife of Manoah and told her, you're going to conceive and have a child. And then she went back and told her husband, and the husband was kind of in disbelief. And so she asked the Lord again, hey, you know, would you show back up? And he did. And so Manoah was there with his wife, and they got the news that she was going to have a child. And then they offered a sacrifice, and they realized when they offered the sacrifice, it was burning Jesus. I believe, again, it was a Christophany, went up in the sacrifice in the flames. And they were worried that they were going to die. And the wife of Manoah said, you know, if he wanted to kill us, he would have done it already. And, of course, Samson was born after this. Now, Samson, I I maintain, it's just my own personal belief, that Samson probably wasn't a big guy. It's never referred to, or he is never referred to as somebody who is head and shoulders over someone else, like King Saul. King Saul was big, or the oldest brother of King David, you know, tall, handsome, uh, broad shoulders, that type of thing. He's never described like that. And the average height of somebody back then who was a man might have been 5'6", maybe 5'7", so you could see this little guy with all this strength. Now, I could be completely wrong in that. He could have been over six foot and built like God's gym. You know, the shirt that you see on that, he could have been built like that. But I have a tendency to think not. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so he had all of this strength. The mother of Samson knew that he was called by the Lord to have a, the vow of a Nazarite on him his whole life. And there were three things that a vow of a Nazarite had to observe. One, you can't have anything from the fruit of the vine. You can't have raisins, you can't have grapes, you can't have wine, you can't have grape juice. None of that could he have. He was never to cut his hair. Both a woman and a man could take this vow, and they were never to cut their hair while the vow was lasting, and usually it went for 30 days. But this call was on the life of Samson his whole life. And then they're not to come near any type of corpse, any kind of dead animal or dead person. They're to remain far from it. Of course, he violated all of that, and and I'm sure that his mother gave him instruction of what to do. He he was probably a a drinker of alcohol. He went to the Philistine territory where God wanted to use him to judge the Philistines, and he'd go to the parties that were there where wine would be flowing and making merry. And then he touched a dead body. Remember, he killed a lion with his bare hands, and he ripped it apart like a goat. I don't know about you. Maybe you've seen this video. This video, there is a guy who's filming. There's somebody in front of him remaining behind a tree as still as he could be, and he's probably filming too. And then there's a guy who's crouched down with a long gun, a rifle, and he's just pointing it into the brush. And they're all just standing there like this. And all of a sudden, from like me to the doors, this male lion just comes rushing at the guy with the rifle. It's not the time to panic. And... He shot the lion as it was coming at him. I think it was a hunting thing. It wasn't, maybe he was a man-eater, I don't know. But they shot the lion. And that lion was big and it was ferocious. And here comes Samson. Imagine a guy five foot six. Oh, no, you won't. Grabs its jaw, pulls it apart, rips off the legs. He 
did that and then he just cast it to the side and then he didn't tell anyone. He didn't tell his parents. Guess what I did today? He said nothing to his mom, said nothing to his father. After he went back to the Philistine territory, he came back and inside the carcass of the dead lion stench, I'm sure there was a beehive. And in that beehive, he reached in and he grabbed some honey and he just started macking on it. And he took it to his mom and dad and they ate some too, unclean all the way around, not touch the body, not to eat anything that comes out of a dead body, was totally blowing it. He took a wife from a foreign nation, the Philistines. He wasn't supposed to do that. He was probably intimate with Delilah. How else could she let him fall asleep and braid his hair and all of the things that she did and just pester him one day after another to get the information where the source of his strength comes from. So he was doing everything wrong. And he started out so promising. And you could tell his mother was probably saying, Oh, my son, what are you, what are you doing? And they didn't know that this was the plan of the Lord because ultimately the Lord wanted to use him to judge the Philistines and destroy them, bring death to many of them. And of course, in the arena there, the Temple of Dagon, he pushed the pillars to the side and he killed more in that event than he did in all the other things that he did as a judge of Israel. And he spent 20 years as a judge over Israel. And apparently his parents were still alive during this time. But the grief that the parents must have experienced, the mother especially, it would have been overwhelming to see this happen. And then there was Bathsheba. Of course, she gave birth to a son first that died because of David's adultery. And the second son born to her was Solomon. Now, he was given a promise to have the kingdom after David passed away. First Kings chapter 1 verse 24 talks about Nathan coming to him and <clears throat> have you, it says, my Lord, the king declared that Adonijah shall be king after you and that he will sit on the throne because Adonijah was having the sacrifice, sacrificing before the Lord. He was setting himself up as king. And so David said, no, nope, ain't going to happen. And so in front of all the people, he declared that Solomon would be king. And Bathsheba, you know, she must have been very uh, rejo- much rejoicing going on in her heart and happy to see that her son was being elevated, especially what David had done to her and her husband prior to that. So she is finally probably realizing that the blessing of the Lord was upon her son. And he ended up being the wisest king that ever lived and people would come to him and the gold was, silver was so numerous it became almost worthless in Israel and everything was covered with gold and the armaments, the shields of the warriors that were there, gold, gold covered chariots, he had horses, he had 700 concubines and I think 300 wives and remember one's enough for anybody but for him he he had to have them all and there was nothing that he withheld from himself no pleasure whatsoever if it was out there he indulged in it which means he indulged in sin repeatedly over and over and over and because he gave in to both pagan women and idolatry he allowed sacrifices to Molech to go on because he was following the ways of his wives and these sins they were grievous and they were public God said I'm ripping the kingdom out of your hands and he's going to split it and we know that ten kings went to the north and two to the south Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the kingdom never came back together under Christ it will and so Solomon had a great start but he did not finish well and so you have these four people Moses King David Samson 
Solomon, and you have their mothers, which were there. And you, you got to look at it from the perspective of the mothers. Jochebed looking at Moses like, oh, Moses, what's going to go on? She's probably alive when he had to flee, but she probably died in the interim. King David and his mother probably is so promising, and, and she sees David taking care of her and uh, her husband or David's father, uh, just a wonderful man, but all the things that he did wrong. And Samson, how he's going along in his life, just falling into sin and making mistakes. And, and then Solomon and Bathsheba being there. So what's a mother to do at that particular point? Well, the story didn't end there for any of these guys. Again, Moses, a murderer, fugitive, disobedient, complainer. King David, an adulterer, murderer covering his sin. Samson broke his vow, took a foreign wife, died at the end as a result. Solomon, idolater, indulgent in various sins, paganism, uh, allowed that to reign. But then Moses, how did God use Moses? We are blessed today because of Moses' obedience, because he turned it around. We have the entire Old Testament. The Jews had the Old Testament that they clung to. Of course, they abused it and misused it. But we had the knowledge of God because of Moses. And Moses was so tight with God. Talked to him face to face. And, and, you know, he even came down once. And the kind of glory came down. And he was standing at the tent of meeting. This is God who came down because Moses, or excuse me, Miriam and Aaron were complaining about Moses. He took up this Cushite wife. What's he doing? You know, who do you think you are? And... And so God comes down and says, hey, Miriam, Aaron, come here. He called on the carpet, walk up to God. He's right there. It says he was right there. He came down right there. And, And so he says, why do you think you can speak against Moses? I talked to him face to face. What do you think you're doing? And, of course, Miriam became leprous at that point. And Aaron goes, no, Lord, please don't. He turns to Moses. Moses, please talk to God and tell him, don't let this curse come upon her, you know. And then God says, basically, you know, if she would have spit in her, uh, if the father would have spit in her face, would she not be unclean until evening? Make her go outside the camp. And then she came back and she was healed after that. You know, and, and God stood up for Moses. Even though he was a blow it, God stood up for him. And I'm sure if his mother was alive, she would have said, Oh, finally, you know, he's doing what he's supposed to do. And and King David, King David, even though he messed up in his life, you know, he's, and I think it's Ezekiel 37, he's going to be raised to life and be king over the nation of Israel in the millennium. Jesus is going to be there. Some people say he's going to be a co-regent with Jesus just for Israel. Jesus is God over the whole world, you know, but... David is going to be king over Israel. All the other nations, they will have kings. They will have rulers. Now, this area of the United States, I don't think it'll look quite like it did or does now. It'll be changed. But there's going to be someone in this realm, whether it's divided up or it's just one big realm just like it was, there's going to be a king here. There's going to be a king in South America and Brazil and Estonia and Russia and China and and Japan. All of those countries are going to have kings and they're going to have to pay homage to Jesus in Jerusalem. But David is going to be the king over Israel. And so God says, you're still my man, David, even though he blew it. And his mother, I believe, who is a godly woman, she'll be there to witnesses as well. And then Solomon 
You know, the book of Ecclesiastes, some people say, you can't listen to the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote it when he was just deep in sin, and you can't listen to anything he has to say. There's so much wisdom in the book. And at the end of the book, he comes to his senses. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So he knew it's God and it's no one else. So he had his time of sin, but he had turned it around. So for the mothers or a mother who is worried about the failures of their children, there's hope. And it can even happen after we pass on from this life. Hopefully our children survive us, that they don't pass on before us. But there's hope because these four... Now, there are other examples of this in Scripture, but for the single mother who is struggling with raising their children or maybe have adult children that they're just not doing what they're supposed to do, the Lord can get a hold of them. The Lord can grab them by the neck of the neck and say, no, ain't happening, and pull them back and say, you are mine, and can change their heart. And for the mother who has doubts about the job she did in raising her children, if the children are older, the Lord knows. He's kind and compassionate. Is there a perfect father? Only one that I know of, and he's in heaven. Is there a perfect mother? Yes, Patty. Is there any other perfect mother? Uh, There's no other perfect mothers in this life. We all make mistakes, and carrying that guilt, it can be such a heavy burden, and we're not supposed to. Our God is compassionate. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And I think Rick knows that in Hebrew. Is that right? Do you know that in Hebrew? No. You know something, the blessing in Hebrew. Yes. Okay. So the Lord's compassionate. He's gracious to us. If, if you're carrying a burden like... I so blew it with my kids. Ah, the Lord knows. You just reach out to him and say, Lord, can you fix this? Will you fix this? And the book of Numbers, I would give you the same blessing. And I've heard this many times over my time of being a believer. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Could I have all the mothers stand and everyone around them just reach out and put your hand on them? We're going to pray for them that the Lord would bless them. Okay? And it's okay. Mothers can touch each other. It's all right. Uh, But make sure nobody is left untouched if they are a mother. All right? So let's pray. Father, again, I would thank you for the mothers who are here and those who are uh, watching online. I pray that your blessing, your hand of fruitful blessing would be upon them, that you would bring them peace which passes understanding, that you would encourage them in their efforts to follow you, that you would take away the guilt, the oppression, the burden of just worrying about their children. You are the one who is in control. And Father, for those of us who have been blessed with the children and the, the way that our children act, we give you thanks. And for those who are without their children, if their children have passed, I pray that you bring comfort to their hearts. I pray that you would help them to reconcile this with your help. And so, Father, we bless you this day. We thank you for our mothers. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.